Welcome, and thank you for joining us in today's teaching as we continue our study through the book of Revelation. Here is Pastor Greg. Revelation chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 10 this morning. We, uh, two weeks ago, we were uh, in chapter 19 and we really covered really the first six verses. I really read to verse 9, but we really spoke mostly of the first six verses. This chapter in most of our Bibles is probably uh, titled The Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And we also know within this chapter that we have the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're at this point in the book of Revelation, we're coming really to the close of the tribulation period, that seven-year tribulation period. We're winding down. It's going to climax really with the return of Jesus Christ. But two weeks ago when we looked at these first six verses... We, I titled it, Let's Worship God. And what we have to uh, always keep in mind that what we're reading here in the book of Revelation, for us as a church, it pertains to you that know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What we're reading here is really you in heaven worshiping God and praising God for what he has done. And for what he's about to do. Let's, uh, let's read these six verses again. And I want to recap it for those that maybe weren't here, but also for us that were. Look at your Bibles, verse 1. After these things, and after these things would be reference to chapter 17 and 18, which really were those two parenthetical chapters that spoke about Babylon, Mystery Babylon, and that great city Babylon that would be destroyed. And so here John now is taken up into the heavenly scene, and it says that after these things, after chapter 17 and 18, he says, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Isn't that going to be a great day? We're all going to be that. You know, I hope that we're all kind of in a little cluster as a church. Just worshiping the Lord and lifting up our voices to God. Hallelujah! Or praise the Lord is what we're going to be saying in light of what we have just seen transpire. God has judged Babylon. And brought it to nothing. It says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupt who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. You know, when you think of the righteous judgments of God, they're true. They're righteous. These are actually two attributes that make up his character, the character of God. True and righteous, truth and righteousness make up his very character. And when God judges, and when God is bringing upon this earth the judgments that he will bring, They're all true, and they're righteous, they're fair, they're just. And no one will be able to question it. And the church in heaven is actually going to be rejoicing in it. Remember I shared that there's going to come a point where evangelism is going to stop. We're at that point in the book of Revelation. 
Now it's rejoicing in the righteous judgments, those final judgments, those bold judgments that are going to be poured out in the end upon this earth. And we're going to be in full agreement with God. We read in verse 3, And this great multitude again said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. The second outburst of praise and worship. It's this same great multitude, which we read about in chapter 7, which I believe is every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. I believe these are the tribulation saints. Where John said that he couldn't even number them. The number was so great. A great multitude just lifting up voices of praise before God. And they're looking and seeing Babylon and the, and the smoke rising up from her destruction. And then we hear another outburst. And this outburst comes in verse 4. And the 24 elders, which I shared that I believe is the church, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, which I believe are angelic beings, they all fall down. The church falls down. These angelic beings fall down before the throne of God and they worship God and they worship the one who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. We're actually joining in to this praise of worship with the tribulation saints that have come out of it. Then in verse 5, John hears another voice, and it doesn't tell us who the voice is, but it's probably one of the angels that is about the throne that also says, Praise our God, all you His servants and those who fear Him, both small and great. And in response to that, in verse 6, we read, Then I heard, John hears as it were, or something that sounded like the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. This is going to be, I believe, all of heaven crying out in worship of the Lord. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Omnipotent means that he's all-powerful. We're going to acknowledge, we're going to just understand and see the power of God being displayed. He reigns. And the church is going to be rejoicing in that. This morning, we're going to look at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In verse 7 and 8, look in your Bibles. We read, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. And the question, you can say, why? And it tells us, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. This is another reason that the church is rejoicing because the marriage of the Lamb has come. Verse 8, And to her, or to the bride, or to the church, it was granted to be arrayed in white and fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In verse 7, this great multitude of believers, I believe, is really overwhelmed with gladness. They're filled with rejoicing right now. They're giving glory to God, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. It might be better understood, and you'll see why, that the marriage of the Lamb is now complete. It's now come to its completion. The first part of our marriage to Christ happened when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. When you were born again, 
You came into this relationship really with Jesus Christ himself. And really, it was a contract. It was a contract that was consummated. It was a, a legal marriage, so to speak, began the day you gave your life to Jesus Christ. When Christ comes back for the church at the rapture, the second part of this wedding is going to be fulfilled when the bridegroom goes to receive, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, to receive or to fetch the bride and to bring her to her new home. The third part will be when the church is in heaven as the bride and there's going to be this cleansing ceremony that is completed and the marriage is going to be consummated there in heaven. And then the fourth part of this marriage is going to be seen in the wedding feast. So there's really four aspects to what is transpiring here. We also see that the bride here in our text is already his wife, meaning the church. And so what started at Christ's first coming, when he came to the earth the first time, and that relationship that began with the church, the church was birthed and became really the bride of Christ, is now going to be completed in heaven when we are taken to heaven. And then what's going to follow that is going to be this wedding feast where it's going to be all the believers of all time that are going to be gathered at that place called the marriage supper of the Lamb. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, he compares the local church to a bride. But in his picture here, he's exhorting the church at Corinth to maintain a purity just like a virgin would be. Paul says this, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You see, Paul saw this picture of this marriage relationship between the church and God himself. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul also spoke of the marriage between Christ and the church. And we read in verses 25 and 27, keep in mind that when we read this chapter 5 of Ephesians, that quite often people use this in relationship to our marriage relationship on earth. And really this, in context, there's a dual application to chapter 5. It does speak about that marriage relationship on earth, but I believe it also speaks about the relationship with the church in Christ. This is what Paul says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Isn't it amazing to think about the relationship that you have with God, the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ, that it's that intimate, like a marriage should be, but that we have this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It's incredible. He describes it as a marriage. When we read through the Bible or you read through the book of Revelation, we always have to keep in mind that there is a lot of Jewishness to the Bible. Would you agree? Uh, Much of what we read in the Bible, remember that the word of God first came to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Jesus was a Jew. The way he communicated to uh, to the people of the day had Jewishness to it. And so when you read your Bibles, where we get removed from that is if you're not a Jew and you don't understand a lot of these things, we have to do a lot of digging and research to figure out what is he really saying here. I believe that when Jesus spoke to a Jew of his day, there was no problem 
talking about the wedding, talking about how a wedding would go. They understood it. They saw it. They participated in those things. The symbolism that we see, the pictures that Jesus painted in their minds as he taught them, talking about the sower and talking about the various things. They got it. They understood it. But here's the part that the Jews struggled with. They might have understood the practical part of it and how, and how they could relate to it, but it was really the spiritual part that many times went by them because Jesus was relating something practical to something that was spiritual. And many times for us, as we read the Word of God, we're reading it and going, I'm not getting it. I don't see it. And, and so we have to dig and we start looking at some of the culture and some of the things of the day and go, now that makes sense. Now I understand what he's saying there. I shared uh, with you two weeks ago in our study a little bit about this traditional Jewish wedding and, and really how it correlates with chapter 19 here. Remember I shared about uh, that there was the first part of gaining a wife, and it was really the choosing of the wife, uh, which really was a, uh, a common practice back in the Lord's day, and it's a common practice even in some places in the world today, that the parent, that the father actually has the right to be able to, to choose the, the groom for his, for his daughter. He has the right to do that. As I shared, I like that whole idea. It's a good thing to be able to pick out the husband for your daughter. But just as God the Father also has chosen you, did you know that he has the right as God to choose? And if you're here today and you're born again, and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you have been chosen and handpicked by God. Isn't that incredible? He chose you and he had all the right to do so. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul writing to the Ephesians said, Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Did you know that you were chosen? Before God ever even created the heavens and the earth, that he knew you. Even in your mother's womb, he already knew. He created you and knew you and chose you. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul wrote this, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The second part of this marriage or this traditional Jewish wedding would have been the negotiation or the contract. It really happened between the two families as they would come together and there would be an agreement that would be made. There would be a dowry that would be agreed upon. Now, a dowry was really just really compensation. I like this one too, Chris. I, I, compensation, right? Because what's happening here is when you give up a daughter, Chris, when you give up a daughter, it's almost as if I'm losing something and you're gaining, the other uh, parents are gaining something. And so a dowry would be exchanged. Sometimes that dowry would also be given to the woman. If the husband ever left, she would have something to fall back on. Now, it wasn't always given in monetary ways. It was given also in service. And so keep that in mind. <laughs> so the negotiation, we know that, uh, that Jacob, that he served seven years for Rachel. He, he labored to get his bride. In relationship to our salvation... The dowry that was paid was really, I believe, the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the seal that has sealed you until the day of redemption. And you have a dowry. Then we have the betrothal. And betrothal actually means by definition really just engagement. We call it being engaged. And so you have the betrothal period uh, that normally would last for a whole year. Uh, It would be the time period between the betrothal and this agreement and the wedding itself. And there would be, during this time, there would be no physical relationship between the two. Remember, this was the period at which uh, Mary got called into question. She was in this betrothal period where there should be no sexual relationships going on. And she was questioned how she could be with child during this period. The bride, or we could say the church... The bride has been waiting for the bridegroom for 2,000 years now. The church has been waiting for the bridegroom to come. We might say as a church that we're in the betrothal period as we're waiting for the, the finish of this wedding ceremony. But then comes the fourth part. Uh, this is called the fetching of the bride. Before the bridegroom would go to fetch his bride, he would have already prepared a place for his bride to come to. He already would have the home and everything set up, and he would be working on that, and that would all be set up before he ever went to fetch his bride. The bridegroom's father, during this time, at his discretion at the timing that he saw fit, might say to his son, son, it's time to go fetch your bride. But that was all given to the, the, to the discretion of his father. The father would say, it's time, go fetch your bride. The son, by the time the son would hear that, the, 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 the bride that was there in her home, she would not even know that her bridegroom was coming. She wouldn't even know that that time had come. And so what would happen is that they would blow a shofar or they would blow a trumpet. They would shout with a loud voice that the bridegroom is coming. And it would give warning for the bride to make herself ready for the bridegroom is on his way. We can see the correlation to a lot of these things really throughout Scripture. Uh, One of those places in John chapter 14 that talks about a place being prepared for us. We're familiar, I'm sure, with this Scripture. John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's that preparation before the fetching of the bride. The father tells the son when the time will be to go fetch his bride. And we read in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus speaking to his disciples told them, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, but the father only. The father is the only one that knows the time when the rapture is going to take place, when Christ is going to come back for his church. Then we have the fetching of the bride. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 13 about the rapture of the church. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain 
until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Here comes the bridegroom with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. He's coming and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. The rapture of the church. The fetching of the bride. The church. When we arrive in heaven, there is also a part of the Jewish wedding that was called the ritual cleansing. Before the actual ceremony would be presided over, there would be this ritual cleansing. Now we know from scripture that there, uh, it tells us that we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Did you know that? You are not going to stand before the great white throne judgment, but you will stand before the Greek word bima for judgment, the bima seat of Christ. And I believe that there is going to be, in a sense, this could correlate with that ritual cleansing. We have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ the day you accepted Christ. But when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, what's going to take place? There is going to be a judgment of your works, whether they were of the right heart, right motive, if God is going to reward you for that, or if you are going to have a loss of rewards. That will happen with the church. And I believe that it will happen when we come into the presence of the Lord. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul wrote about this in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, do you see how they diminish from gold to straw, each one's works will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. Fire being that purifying uh, thing that God uses to sort out those things that were of wrong motive. We did it from the wrong heart. We thought we were doing it for the Lord, but we were really doing it for ourselves, or so other people could see me. God says, you don't get rewarded for those. Those things don't re- get a reward when we do them for self. The ones that will be purified and come out of that fire are the things that were done from the right heart unto the Lord. If anyone's works which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. Did you know that the wedding garment that you're going to be putting on when we're there in heaven, before this marriage is consummated in heaven, uh, those wedding garments might be of different sorts. We are all going to, those that are truly saved, have on a wedding garment. But there's one commentator that said this. I thought it was good. Dr. Lehman Strauss writes, Has it ever occurred to you that the marriage of the bride to the lamb, each of us will be wearing a wedding garment of his own making? In other words, what are you doing for the Lord here in this life? What things are you gathering up in this life? What will your wedding garment look like there in heaven? Upon the arriving at the house, uh, there would be, this is after the, uh, the bridegroom has brought the bride back to his place. There's then going to be this wedding ceremony. Uh, we're in heaven, and this is what I believe that the early church is rejoicing about, or excuse me, in Revelation 19, what they're rejoicing for this moment. It was here that the Father would pronounce the, we could call it the benediction upon the newlyweds. The bride and the groom would consummate their marriage there that night. And this is, I believe, where we're at in verse 7 and 8. Of chapter 19. It says, Let us be glad in verse 7 and rejoice 
and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. This is what they're rejoicing in. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her, I believe the church or the bride, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Is there any real righteous acts that we have? (laughs) We do righteous acts unto the Lord, but you know what? We stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Did you know that when you stand before the Lord someday, it won't be any of your own righteousness? It won't be anything that you could just say, this is why I'm here. When you stand before God someday, you'll be standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His righteousness was given to you. And you stand pure and holy before him because of his righteousness. The last part of the marriage ceremony is going to be the marriage feast. I shared the church who is the bride has already consummated the marriage in heaven. The tribulation period has come to a close. The Old Testament saints have now been resurrected. Remember, they're going to have a different resurrection than the church-age saints. The tribulation saints, those that died during that seven-year tribulation period, they're also going to be resurrected at the end. And all of the church and all of the tribulation saints and all of the Old Testament saints are all going to be here for this marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be like we're all going to be joining together at this great banquet table. Wouldn't it be awesome when you sat down at that table if if all of a sudden you looked off to your right and you're sitting next to Moses? Or Abraham. Isn't that going to be cool? Somebody, whoa! But we're all going to be sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look in your Bibles at verse 9. Then he, speaking about this angel, said to John, Write this, John. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Now, if the bride of Christ is the church, which I believe that it is, and the church is already in heaven, and the marriage has been consummated, then these other people that are invited to come along to the marriage, they appear to be of a different group. And I believe the different group really is going to be the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints that are going to be resurrected at a different time. Remember that the marriage ceremony, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, it was, a, it was attended really by a smaller group of the family or people. The actual ceremony itself, which could be, I believe, a picture of the church itself. A smaller group. Then later, then the invitation went out to the whole group of people, or lots of people, to come and partake a part of the feast of the wedding, the last part of the wedding. And so that's, I believe, the picture that we are seeing here. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, the question arises who are called? Who are the called and who are the ones that are going to be called to this marriage? And what's required for them to be able to sit there at the marriage supper of the Lamb? What do they need to to be dressed like? How do they need to be to be able to be invited and to be able to attend? In the book of Matthew, if you want to turn there to Matthew chapter 22, we have here the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus, in context here, was on the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. This was the day after he had ridden into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey as king. 
into Jerusalem that day. And now Jesus is back on the Temple Mount the following day, and he's confronted by the chief priest and the Pharisees, and he now uses this as an opportunity to give them a parable about the wedding feast. Keep in mind that I believe that what we're seeing here is something that is prophetic. The parable that we're going to look at here, it answers the question, who is worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven and to be able to sit down at the wedding feast? That's really what's being answered here. Look in your Bibles at verse 2, chapter 22. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. Now, I believe that this certain king, I believe we could correlate it with God the Father, who arranged a marriage. There's that whole arrangement. He arranged the marriage for his son, which I believe is Jesus Christ. He sent out his servants to call those, and those there, I believe, is Israel. I'm giving you my interpretation. And he sent out his servants to call those, Israel, who were invited to the wedding. And the wedding, I believe, was the coming kingdom of heaven. And they, speaking about Israel, were told, were not willing to come. In other words, they rejected the invitation. Israel, we know, fell. Israel rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. It really ended really there at the cross. He's not the one that we're looking for. They rejected him as Messiah. The invitation went out, but they rejected it. Look at verse 4. Again. In other words, this is another invitation. Again, he sent out other servants. Who are the other servants? Well, I believe that we're looking now, looking ahead into the book of Acts, the early church, taking the gospel once again out to the Jews, taking it out to the world, but first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. We have here these other servants once again going out with an invitation saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. It's a second invitation. But then look what it says in verse 5. But they made light of it. And they went their ways. One to his own farm. Another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. Well, we know what the Jews did to those that preached the gospel and many of the religious people of the day. And many of them basically were in their rejecting. They're just saying, I'm too busy. I'm busy in life. They were indifferent. They were non-responsive to this invitation. And some of them were even actually hostile towards the invitation to come. Some of you have been hostile in your life towards the gospel before you came to Christ. Some of you were indifferent to the invitation that was given to you before you gave your life to Christ. But we see here that this second invitation goes out, but they made light of it. They didn't respond to it. But then look at verse 7. But when the king or the father heard about it, he was furious And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. And so we see here, I believe, really a future prophecy that was looking forward to really the day that I believe that the Temple Mount there was going to be overrun by the armies of Titus. In 70 AD, Titus came in and destroyed and sought to kill every Jew, sought to tear and tore down the temple at that time and, and burned it. 
And they say today that you can actually dig, and they have dug down, and they have found six inches of ash at a certain level, where I believe that that city was completely burned. And I believe it's a prophecy, really, that was fulfilled. He said to his servants, the wedding is ready. It's ready. All you need to do is have the right garments on and to come and to receive this invitation. But it says, but those, and I believe it's speaking of Israel, who were invited were not worthy. They rejected this invitation to come. And God sent the armies, really, in a sense, to punish Israel. Look at verse 9. Therefore, why? He's changing up right now. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find. And I believe this is a reference now to the Gentiles. This is a reference going to the highways. The Jews would have understood the highways that came into Jerusalem as being the place where the Gentiles were. Go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. They found bad and good. Now, what I read in my Bible is there's no one good, no, not one. And so who are the good? Well, I believe that the bad is obvious. They acknowledge the fact of where they stand, but the good are the self-righteous that would seem as if, I'm all right. I'm good. I deserve to go to the banquet. Go out and give them the invitation and tell them the gospel and tell them that there's no one good, no, not one. That you need to come to a place where you repent. You can't stand before God in your self-righteousness. The wedding hall was full. But when the king, verse 11, came to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Get this picture in your head. He didn't have on a wedding garment and he's sitting there with the rest of the guest. It was typical that the father would distribute wedding garments to those that were invited. Those that were invited to the wedding feast. But we're told that this person as he was confronted there that was sitting there without a wedding garment, it says that He was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You see, there won't be anyone that is going to sneak into heaven. There won't be anyone that's going to get there in their own self-righteousness or get in by another means. The Lord sees every heart. He sees every individual, whether they are properly dressed for that wedding feast. The only way that you can put on that garment is to receive the invitation of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to invite him to come into your heart and to be born again, to become a child of God. And then he becomes your bridegroom. And he's going to come and snatch away his bride, those that are his. And when we sit there with all the tribulation saints and all the Old Testament saints and all the church age saints and we sit at this banquet, it's only going to be the church. It's only going to be the believers, excuse me, that are going to be there. Many are called, but few are chosen. This invitation goes out to the whole world. But not necessarily everyone receives it. You might ask the question, how do you know if you're chosen? And how does a person know if they're one of God's chosen? Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're chosen. That's simple. Just receive him as Lord and Savior, and you're one of the chosen one. That's how you know. Am I chosen? 
Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? No, I haven't. Well, then I can't tell you if you're chosen or not. Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I have. Then you're chosen by God. We will all have the righteous wedding garments on. His righteousness given to your account. We actually read in chapter 19 that when we come back, and we'll look at this next week, in verse 14 it says that the armies in heaven, which I believe is the church that's going to be returning with our Lord, the armies in heaven, they come back with the Lord clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and they follow him on white horses. (laughs) That's the church. That's you and your fine linen, the righteous acts of the saints. And now in verse 10, and we'll close with this. And I, John, fell at his feet to worship him. He's talking about an angel here. John sees this angel and he's in such awe of what he is seeing, he actually falls down at the feet of this angel and begins to worship this angel. But the angel said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brother who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here's this angel redirecting John worship him I'm not quite sure what we would do if all of a sudden you saw some angelic being you might fall down at its feet to worship worship God he says and I'm sure John stopped and redirected his worship then the angel says to John Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, which simply means that the purpose of prophecy, and there is much of that in the Bible, isn't there? The purpose of prophecy is to bear witness to the person of Jesus Christ. Prophecy reveals the person of Jesus Christ. There's only one last event we have a few more chapters but there's really one last main event that is going to take place the second coming of Jesus Christ it's what we our whole Christian life have been waiting for it's what the church 2,000 years ago was asking the Lord when is that day going to come the return of Jesus Christ. I think that we should all be sitting on the edge of our seats in the days that we're living in. Because I believe that everything I'm seeing and watching and observing warns me time is drawing near. The marriage supper of the Lamb is coming close. Let's rejoice in the fact that we know him, that we've been, jo- that we've been chosen, that we're going to participate, that he's not going to kick us out of the feast if you know him as your Lord and Savior. Let's rejoice in that this morning. When we get to next week the second coming of Jesus Christ it's going to be a time really for us as a church where it's going to be another reality check it's going to be another uh, time for us to go you know what sometimes I lose sight of that that the Lord is coming back Sometimes it's easy for us to get caught up into life isn't it And all of a sudden we think, you know, is he ever coming back? I mean, come on. 
I've been waiting a long time. I've said that I don't know how many times. When is the Lord coming back? And he will. Just as sure as he came, he will return and come back to take those who love him. My prayer is that everyone in this room is born again. But the, the problem is I can't see everybody's heart. I don't know. But God knows. You don't want it to be an eye-opening day for you as that man that sat there at the feast and didn't even realize. He probably thought, I'm all right. <laughs> I'm mixed in with the rest of them here. I'll never notice. <laughs> no, no, you were never of me. I never knew you. We don't want to have an eye-opening day except an eye-opening day to look at the Lord, but not one where I realized I thought I was all right, but I wasn't. There was a lady in my home church back in California. She was an assistant pastor's wife. Assistant pastor's wife. She, after five years of attending our church, went forward to receive Christ on a Sunday. She said, you know what, I was raised, I knew about God and this and that, but she goes, you know what, I think this day I have come to realize I was never born again. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how shocked we all were? And so to be born again is simply to ask Christ to forgive you of your sin, to invite him to come in to your heart It's really that simple. He died for me. He rose from the dead. He's alive today. I ask him to forgive me. Forgive me. Receive him into my heart and life. Be born again. And you have eternal life. Father, I want to thank you uh, for this morning, Lord. I thank you for the promises that you have given to us. I thank you for the assurance that we have that these things will come to pass in your perfect timing. Lord, that we would occupy until you come, that we would be busy about your business here on earth, that we would make the best use of our time, because then the Lord comes. And Lord, that we would be ready. Father, that we would glorify you with our lives, even today. Lord, it may be our last. And we thank you for it. Let us truly worship you now from our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.